0: Um, And I don't know if any of you still got any New Year's resolutions that have lasted this long? Um, Possibly not, uh, possibly so. There's a friend of mine's uh, resolution was to stop hanging around people that keep asking him about how he's getting on with these New Year's resolutions. So I was hoping he was gonna be here this morning, uh, just to make that point. Somebody's very cleverly defined a New Year's resolution as something that goes in one year and out the other. Uh, Here's a good one. Dear God, my prayer for 2017 is a fat bank account and a thin body. Please don't mix it up like you did last year. (laughs) I'm not sure that's a resolution. I think that's more kind of passing the buck, uh, to be honest. But life seems to be so much about finding that elusive something, uh, something that we're looking for, something that we've not quite found. And uh, sometimes people talk about a God-shaped hole uh, in our lives, but maybe that's a little bit too simplistic because yes, we're, we're called to love God, but also we're called, called to love one another, uh, love our neighbors uh, as ourselves. And, and even Jesus had a number of dimensions to his life. It talks in Luke 2, 52 about how he grew not only spiritually which he did one was an important part of his life it says that he grew in favor with God but he, he grew relationally he grew in favor uh, with man um, he grew in wisdom and intellect it, it talks about his wisdom growing and also physically his stature um, his health I suppose and his strength grew as well but there is still that core part of our lives that is often restless Is that part of our lives that is looking for meaning in life, looking for purpose in life, looking for real life, looking for real love, looking for significance? What's the point of my life uh, that that we're here for? Sometimes it's trying to understand who we are Um, and people trying to find themselves, people looking for acceptance, people searching for satisfaction. What does that look like? What what does a framework of security look like for me in this world as I try and protect myself from all that is around me? And uh, we look to fill those things in a whole variety of ways Um, and we see people around us doing so also. And yet there's this invisible kind of often unknown appetite deep within each one of us that demands that we feed it with something. And uh, we feed it in so many different ways. But what is the key to this restless heart that we have? Because people have a need for love and affirmation and belonging. And acceptance means that we try to fill that with, with friendships, with relationships, with laughs, with nights out. Um, And sometimes we we misuse those friendships, we misuse those relationships, or we become driven like things which is very popular today, which is the fear of missing out. And we have to be at this, and we have to be, be where everyone else is on social media with that. Perhaps it's the pain of loss, or disappointment, or hurt, or rejection, that means that we try to fill it with things that will numb the pain. Very often it's alcohol, or drugs, or or excessive eating, or whatever, to try and forget the pain, to distract us, to comfort us, and to sometimes to project that pain onto other people, and we see hurting people hurting others. The need for security means that we're often trying to pursue money, or stuff, uh, other protective measures or insurances in our lives. And the desire for significance and purpose and meaning leads us to pursue sometimes work practices that perhaps are not the healthiest, um, driven by wrong priorities, often at the expense of those nearest and dearest uh, to us. It can even be that we pursue religion or some philosophy in the hope that it will try and make us a better person in some way. And at different stages of life, I think we find ourselves pursuing different ones of these. Thinking, I realize now that the last one wasn't all that it was cracked up to be, uh, but maybe the next one will be. And so we head off into that one, the new promotion, the new experience in life that we think is gonna make life uh, what it's all about. Very interestingly, Prince Charles uh, said this in one of his speeches. There remains deep in the soul, if I dare to use that word, a persistent and unconscious anxiety that something is missing, some ingredient that makes life worth living. And uh, St. Augustine, um, uh, well-known kind of father of the church, as it were, paraphrased by C.S. Lewis, Blaise Pascal, other great thinkers, said this, that you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Restless. Until they rest in you. And actually, St. Augustine, you know you think he's an amazing guy, but actually he was a very rebellious uh, guy, um, a man. and it took him a long time to come around to Christianity. Obviously, when he did, it was, it was, it was a big thing for him. Um, but God actually wants to fill each one of us with a really deep sense of his love and a deep sense of his purpose and his empowering to live the life that He calls us to. Uh, Paul writes this to the church in Rome in Romans 5.5, that he has poured out his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And those of you who would identify yourselves as Christians today, uh, maybe have come to terms uh, with much of this teaching, and, and you know that God fills those deep, restless parts of your being. But perhaps you know that on a Sunday, at a Sunday service, uh, when the worship is, is, is great and all the rest of it, or perhaps we know it when we, when we open our Bibles on a, on a, on a Monday morning uh, for, for 15 minutes or so just to kind of engage with God. But do we really know it at other, all the other times? You know, is that where we leave him? Do we leave him here on a Sunday? Do we leave him in the pages of this book? Or does he travel with you into the office? Does he travel with you into the classroom um, at uni or college? Does he travel with you into the media company where you work? Or into the shops or the coffee places where you meet up with friends, um, or your leisure activities, you know, down the gym, uh, or just the grind of every day, the mundane of everyday living. Is he there? Or do we think he's he's here, but not really there? Do we think he's between the the pages of the leather leather Bible, but not between the, the leather bits of our briefcase when we go into work? Do we believe he's here when things are going really well for us, but he's not when things don't seem to be working out? And the book of Ezekiel, which we're kind of looking at and is a basis of our, of our passage this morning, speaks into all of this. Because the, the people of God had been in Jerusalem and uh, they'd been in Israel, and there they had a temple where they could meet with God, and God did incredibly powerful things amongst them as a result. But the people have gone off the rails and. Uh, uh, God has eventually said, enough is enough. And so he leads them out through modern day Syria and into modern day Iraq, uh, Babylon, uh, as it was in then. And effectively, God is collectively putting them on the naughty step, okay? He's saying, it's time for you to learn some lessons there. The temple's been destroyed, Jerusalem's been ransacked, and they've been taken captive and exiled into Babylon. And they're trying to work out what to do now. Where is God in all of this? And the first chapters of Ezekiel are a bit weird. If you read chapter one, you start to read of these, he has these amazingly weird visions of uh, some pretty wacky things. Visions of living creatures with four faces. And they've got wheels um, that intersect one another. And you're thinking, what on earth is this all about? And they point in all the directions of the compass. But in a nutshell, it's a vision that says that God is not restricted to the temple. He's not restricted to Jerusalem. He's not restricted to being only at work in Israel. But he can be anywhere and he can be everywhere. He has a visa for Babylon, okay? He has a passport and will travel is what he's trying to say to his people. But likewise to us, he he has a security lanyard for your workplace, okay? He has a membership of your gym. He, He has a desk in your classroom. He has WhatsApp for the group chat. He is present with us in every bit of every day in all that we do. John Ortberg said this He said, To believe as Jesus did doesn't mean believing that Jesus just exists, so believing that God just exists. It means to believe he's always present. So it's not just believing that God exists, but that God is with you. God is present with you in every bit of every day. And in Babylon, You can read about Daniel and his friends, and he believed that. They believed that God was with them in Babylon, despite it being miles and miles away from where they had been and where they didn't really want to be anymore. You can read about his endeavors in the book in the Old Testament that's named after him. In Egypt, Joseph believed that God was present all the way from when he was in prison all the way to when he was in the palace, and you can read about that in the last 14 chapters of Genesis. And in both of those cases, what happens is God's kingdom comes because these people believe that God is present, that God can be trusted and that he can be obeyed, and his kingdom comes. And the word kingdom is two parts, it's king and dome. And a dome is is a sphere of influence where God is king. And anybody and everybody that trusts that God is present, that he is king, that he can be trusted and obeyed, then God's kingdom comes. His influence comes upon that situation. And our passage in Ezekiel 47 for this, this series of this temple and this river is a picture of God's kingdom coming and transforming the world in which we, in which we live. Bringing life wherever the river flows to it. And this is a fun foundational concept to Riverside um, as a church. The phrase uh, we like to we, we nick from someone is a church as a force. The church as a force. And it's this river that goes out and sweeps through uh, our communities. There's a key chapter in a book by Jerry Cook uh, in a book called Love, Acceptance, and Forgiveness, an old friend of Riversides. And he paints a picture of what uh, and how he sees the church should be. And there are many churches, especially in the US, uh, kind of North America where he's from, where the model is not the church as a force. The model is a church as a field. And the model is that everything that you do for the church is in the church building. Okay? That is what, where the church is, that is what the church is. And therefore, their driving priorities become publicizing the church, putting in as big a spire on the church as possible, having great visibility for it, in the hope that as people pass by, they will come in and then you can do church to them, if that makes sense. That's, that's, that's one model. However, and there's nothing wrong with publicity, there's nothing wrong with visibility. However, Jesus talks about uh, the world as being the field. In Matthew 13, verse 38, he has this parable and he says, the field is the world. Okay, that is where we do the work. That is where we do the work of the kingdom. It's not the church building. In fact, the church is not a building, it's the people. And wherever the people of God are, that is where the church is. Scattered through the week and then obviously gathered on a Sunday, serving people in the world and meeting needs in Jesus' name out there. And so we're to encourage one another to be people who are filled with God's spirit, filled with God's life, so that we can meet others' needs in the name of Jesus. And then we gather to to worship, to celebrate, to share stories of what God has been doing uh, through, through us, to read the Bible in an environment that perhaps is slightly less profanity than you're used to during the week, you know, hopefully anyway, a, a clear, pure, loving environment. Why? So that we can go back out into the world and we can make a difference in transforming uh, the culture and society and the workplaces and work communities where we are. That is a church as a force, where we're a conduit of God's spirit and we're a conduit of his kingdom into our world. And that is the picture of Ezekiel 47 verses one to 12 this river that brings life wherever it flows, verse nine. And it's also why Riverside is called Riverside. So that's the river we talk about in our name. It's often said that as Christians, we have a lot of religion in our hearts. Um, We have a good bit in our heads, but we often don't have as much in our feet. Okay, and this kind of living needs all kinds of shoes. Okay, it needs football boots for the likes of Real Riverside. Okay, those guys and folks that support that who are trying to reach other, other young guys across Birmingham through football and uh, whatever sports team you might be part of. And uh, we'll include rugby boots in there and trainers and uh, hockey boots, lacrosse boots, whatever your sport is, you can have them in there. Shiny black shoes and high heels in the business world. Uh, slippers, I'm not quite sure how slippers got on there, but maybe you can, uh, you know, that you can bring God's kingdom through your slippers okay, sandals, flat shoes, maybe even wellies, okay, whatever walk of life you're in, we're to bring God's God's kingdom, and so the challenge, here's our challenge, our challenge is to fill up your boots, you know the phrase, fill up your boots with God, and take God's kingdom wherever that would be, let his kingdom come, John chapter 7, as uh, Tim also read, verse 38, whoever believes in me, As the scripture has said, streams or rivers of living water will flow from within him. And this is Jesus' reference to Ezekiel 47. This is his reference to that river from the temple and the flow of God's spirit. In fact, the word rivers is is a plural that Jesus uses here. Um, And the root word in Greek for for rivers is is potamus. rings a bell. It's where we get the word hippopotamus from. Hippos is horse, potamus is river. He's a water horse. Okay, quite a formidable character, the hippo. Um, And the idea is that this is a forceful river. This is a raging river, as it were. And the Nile uh, was considered, particularly when it was in full flood, to be a raging bull. And there was a lot of mythology around all of that. But even the hippopotamus, I can imagine, if you met face-to-face in a river, would be a a formidable uh, um, confrontation. Um, Something quite powerful and Jesus uses uh, the plural here, rivers, and you could just imagine, you know, all of the rivers of the world. You know, the, the Nile, the Ganges, the Mississippi, the Jordan, the Amazon, uh, the Danube, whatever. All together, that is that is quite a, an inexhaustible and abundant flow of water that you come in, and that's the, the picture here of this river of God. You might imagine rushing waters down a ravine after the heavy rains, or it's not limited to the waterfall, but it's coming down all the sides as well, excuse me. But the key here is that the water is flowing. Okay, it's not stagnant, it's moving. And when it hits the Dead Sea, it brings life. Because the Dead Sea is too salty for anything to live. And the reason that it is dead is because there's no outflow. Okay, water hits it, it evaporates. Water enters, it evaporates, and it just gets saltier and saltier. Nothing ever flows out from it. Um, Because there's no outflow, there's no life. Um, And therefore, nothing can be healthy or live there. But the rivers of living water, Jesus says, flow from within him and then from us. They flow out from us. And it's as they flow to this world that actually it brings life. Um, Interestingly, even with the temple, it's only a trickle where it starts. And if you read the passage, as it gets deeper and deeper, it's out there in the world. The further away it gets... The further out there, the more water there is in this amazingly supernatural kind of way. And so the living water flows, he says, or will flow from his disciples into the world. It literally flows from within them and uh, is available to others, to anyone else who is thirsty, anyone else who will believe. Um, As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, you blessed is he or she who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, they will be filled. So if you're here today and you're looking for for righteousness in your own life and around us, then come and be filled today. So there's a force to this, there's a fullness of this river that transforms lives, it transforms communities and it comes through kingdom people, the church as a force. Secondly, what is the source of this force? Well actually the force is a person is God himself. And Jesus refers to this uh, picture of the river flowing and he says it's the spirit of God himself for whom those who believed in him would receive. And Ezekiel, again in chapters 40 onwards, has a a vision of this future temple, considered by some to be uh, perhaps the millennial temple when Jesus returns. But the key application for us is that the source of the river is located in the temple of God. Okay, the place of worship, the place of connection with God for the Jewish people. And that is where they met with him. But Jesus says to them in John 7, and he says this at the temple, he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within them. What he's saying here is that the source of this river is not a place, it's a person. The source of this river is Jesus. He is the one that we come to to find our deep human need for love, for security, for significance, for healing, for wholeness, for life. He is the one who ultimately satisfies those deep human hungers that we talked about at the beginning, and now gives us purpose and power to transform our world. But we can learn some parallels, um, I think, from the structure of the temple. Um, there's a Dutch theologian, a guy called Kuiper, who said that the structure of every human being resembles in some way the structure of the temple. And it's in its simplest form, you know, the portable temple that they had, the tabernacle that they used to carry around with them, had an outer court, which is where the cow is. Okay, it had a holy place, which is the first bit of the building with the, looks like the French flag on it, I'm not quite sure why, um, with the altar in it, and the most holy place, the inner sanctum. Now, the outer courts is where everyone is allowed, okay? And that's a little bit like our lives, our our open public lives, the bits of our lives that everyone sees. You know, the bits of of my life that you can go and talk about and comment on afterwards. Okay, all of that. There's the holy place, secondly, and that has restricted access. It's a much smaller chamber uh, where only those that you admit are allowed. And that's a place where we might share and pray with those close to us, and that brings us life. Uh, there are a few people, perhaps, where we can tell everything to. You know, all of our secrets. People that we can confess to. People that we can pray with uh, about those to receive forgiveness and strength for the future. In fact, inviting the right people into the holy place of our lives, if you like, might be the biggest predictor of the longevity of, in- of our integrity. You know, those people that are still going 10, 20, 30 years on are often those that have made themselves well accountable to others and the support and prayers of those. But then there's the, the most holy place, the holy of holies, and that is a very small place. It's a carefully guarded place. In fact, there's only room for one person in there and God. Okay, in the Old Testament, it was the high priest. But because of the cross, because of the resurrection, we now have access. But in a sense, it's still there for just you and God. Now, that is an incredible privilege and an unspeakably precious privilege. Opportunity that each of us has. But if all is not well there, then it doesn't matter how much glory and success there might be in the outer courts. Ultimately, that won't sustain us. But if all is well in that sacred place, if your life with God is good and real and wholesome, then it doesn't matter what disturbances come in the outer courts. None of that can destroy you. And we see how Jesus was challenged continually by people out in the outer courts. But but he stood firm because his central relationship with his father was right. And when you look at Jesus' life and how he prayed, you see all the time that it began with that place with his father. You know, everything that was life-bringing, everything that was life-giving, flowed like the river from that place of relationship with his father. And things got tough in his life. You know, things got very tough for Jesus. It wasn't all plain sailing for him at all. Um, you know, Jesus goes off to pray when he's, you know, there's that the, kind of the sadness and the, the, the concern, if you like, for John the Baptist who's been arrested and eventually killed. You know, and that's pretty significant persecution and he, he steals himself away to pray. He goes off to pray when he, he needs strength for his work and the demands that that brings to him. And he goes off to pray when he's concerned about loved ones um, you think of uh, Simon Peter, and he sees Simon Peter's gonna be tested and he's gonna tr- go through some trials. But he doesn't lecture him or try and fix him, but what he says is I've prayed for you, Simon Peter, that your faith may not fail. And There may be people even this year, but that's, that's your prayer. You know, the people that you need to be praying that their faith may not fail in those situations, friends, family members, whoever it might be. And he prayed when he faced insurmountable problems. You know, the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, the night before his execution and then ends up surrendering his life to his father afresh. But that connection with God, that inner place, that private room that gives strength to the outer life. How we need that place to be well in our hearts. John seven thirty eight. whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams or rivers of living water will flow from within them. And the Greek word is koileas. Literally, it means a hollow or a uh, a cavity, an empty place. But its implied meaning in Greek is is different things. So sometimes it's implied to mean our our stomach and our bowels. So there's that time when Jesus says, you know, it's what goes into our mouth and through our stomach and bowels, as it were. Okay, it's, it's also used to mean a, a womb or uterus. So when the, the baby leaps in his mother's womb, that's the word, that's the, the, the space, if you like, um, that is filled with a baby in that point. But it means our, our innermost being in a spiritual kind of sense as well. It also translates appetites in uh, Philippians and Romans, referring metaphorically to those strong inner desires from our fallen nature, those greeds and lusts that demand uh, it kind of immediate gratification. So it, it means that, that kind of spiritually empty place in, in our hearts of men and women, the, the, the place that, that thirsts and yearns for purpose and meaning of life. And God's solution to it is to fill it with living water, to fill it with his Holy Spirit a deep change that Jesus makes at the very core of who we are, where God Almighty enters into our lives in that deepest and most personal part and takes up residence with us. And Christianity is not about primarily going to church. It's about being changed in those deep parts of our lives and being filled within. And so it's the time when Jesus stands up and announces this, you'll see, is, is on the last and greatest day of this feast, this festival. And the festival, the feast is that of tabernacles, a Jewish celebration of God's provision. So through the wilderness years in Egypt, they've moaned about not having any food and not having any water. And God provides the manna and quail for food and then he provides the water in Exodus 17, verse six. Moses is to take his staff, you may know the story. Um, God will stand before the rock, he's to strike the rock and out will come water. Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians 10 and he says actually the rock is Jesus Christ out of which the water comes. Now what they used to do at this feast every day is they'd remember that provision. And the priest would come with a big golden um, pitcher, if you like, water pitcher, and he'd march the people down to the pool of Siloam. And he'd fill up the the water pitcher uh, from the pool and the crowds would chant the great psalms. And then they'd recite Isaiah 12 verse 3 which says this, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And the Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua. Okay, Yeshua is basically the Hebrew word for Jesus. Okay, it's, it's the transliteration into Greek of Jesus. It means deliverer. So it literally is with joy you will draw water from the wells of Jesus, okay, but in Hebrew. And then he'd march them back up to the temple and he'd pour out the water as a kind of prophetic, dramatic uh, um, dramatization really of this river from Ezekiel 47. So this is what they're doing. And on the last day, okay, at this point, Jesus stands up and says, if you're thirsty, come to me and I will give you living water. I'll give you real water of life. And so we can be part of his mission. We can be part of all that he calls us to, uh, of bringing his kingdom to wherever we go, transforming the lives of others, whoever they are as we ourselves are being transformed in the process. And so his great commission is, as you are going into all the world, as you are, whatever shoes you're wearing, as you are going, make disciples, okay, make disciples, and bring, you, bring the kingdom of God to other people, of all nations, actually, all, don't choose, this is for everyone, you don't get to choose who comes. Okay, I know we, we like to choose who we're gonna invite, we probably shouldn't. We should probably just invite those that we have the opportunity to invite because we never know and teach them to obey. That's God's great commission. But there's a second great commission and it's this. He says to his disciples in Luke 24, 49, stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And in Acts 1, wait in Jerusalem for the gift my father promised. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So there's a, a filling by God, okay, being filled, and then there's a flowing out so that life comes to others. There's that initial filling and then an ongoing flowing from our lives. So this morning, perhaps you are someone who needs to ask God to fill you. you know, perhaps you, you've never been filled, or you don't, you're not sure if you've ever been filled Um, with God's spirit. Or perhaps you already know you have his spirit, but the flow needs unblocking in our lives. I think one of my least favorite jobs is unblocking the sink. Or you've got to go and unblock the drain. It is a nasty, nasty job. And I put it off for as long as possible. But there comes a point where you you can go no longer. You cannot exist without unblocking the sink or the drain. And there's some nasty things in there. But once it's unclogged, there's free flowing water. And there's, there's not that stagnant smell. But uh, sometimes we let some pretty nasty stuff lie there for quite a while before we, uh, we actually take action. But perhaps at the start of this year, you know, let's find that one-to-one place with God. And let's unblock the things uh, of our hearts.